Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. All right, I'm joined this week by my usual co-host, Jay Carson. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this week? Good, Mike. How are you? It's good to be back. Yeah, I'm I'm doing just fine. It's good to have you back. So let's start with the big week in immigration policy. Now, there's a lot going on here, and we'll try to take it sort of one bit at a time and then sort of work everything together. But early in the week, the Trump administration announced that it would not renew temporary protected status for Salvadorian immigrants, which was first granted after a few major earthquakes in 2001 and has since been renewed by both Democratic and Republican administrations to this point. Now, the close to 200,000 Salvadorians affected by the decision will be given until September of 2019 to leave. Uh, El Salvador pleaded with the administration to grant a renewal, basically arguing that they would be unable to absorb their returning citizens and that the loss of remittances that they've been sending back to El Salvador Salvador would have a major negative impact on their economy. To get a sense of that, in 2016, El Salvador received $4.6 billion in remittances, and that's mostly from the U.S., and that made up 17% of the country's GDP. Now, the Trump administration is arguing that the program was designed to be temporary in response to armed conflict or natural disaster, and that El Salvador's situation no longer fits those criteria. So, Jay, uh, what do you think about that decision? Well, you know, I think this is this is something, and, and there there have been uh, similar decisions with other of these temporary um, uh, emergency uh, allowances of, of of for immigration. Um, look, first of all, if you're a Salvadoran here, how does that make you feel if your country says no, we we don't want you back, but we want you to keep sending the money? Um, that's sort of a uh, I don't know. It's 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 troubling. A, a big reason I think why Donald Trump was elected uh, is this sense that things are are not as they uh, as they are named as they as they as they seem, and we ought to have a. Um, I'm 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 stumbling for this, but I think we, I said it once before. The Chinese have a, a term for the. Uh, reordering of, of the names, sort of when you sort of bring everything back to, to being what it actually is. And uh, uh, look, if, the, if this is a temporary status, it shouldn't last 20 years. Uh, and I think that's that's a, a, a fundamental problem that a lot of Americans are troubled with. We're happy to be uh, hospitable and charitable and open our doors uh, for uh, things like civil wars, national disasters, and so forth. Um, but this this isn't really that. It was sort of a de facto uh, amnesty immigration, uh, and and it's it's violates certainly the spirit of, of that law, um, and and I I think look these uh, there ought to be a path to citizenship, and I think there probably has been for these these folks who have been here for twenty some years, um, and and that's not unreasonable to say this is a temporary program. Uh, earthquakes over. Uh, and and now they either need to find a a, a legal path to be here uh, or or go back. Um, you know, I think the other thing Trump does in doing this and setting the the 2019 return date is what he did with DACA, which is uh, kick it back to Congress, which is where it should be to say, all right, find a a a path to citizenship uh, or or a path to remaining here uh, for these people. Um, because as a conservative, I mean, so often conservatives are painted as our, our reasons uh, to oppose a lot of immigration policies are based on on race and hatred and xenophobia and all this kind of thing. But really, speaking to lo- most of the conservatives that I, I speak to, it's a matter of just uh, there's a disrespect for the law, the, the idea that, um, yes, here are these laws, but we're just not going to enforce them. We're just going to kind of wink and 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 that's that's it's a rule of law problem well you know i I'll, I'll disagree with you on the spirit of the law thing i think the spirit of the law was uh, uh humanitarian and so i think that the extensions actually are in keeping with the spirit of the law uh but 
but I twenty I, years. But I, but I take no. I'm saying the spirit is about <laughs> about helping people uh, who are who have uh, are experiencing a humanitarian crisis in their country. And I think unfortunately uh, there have been huge problems in El Salvador for a, a long period of time. But that said, I would I would accept your argument. That, you know, in fact, I think your, your, the Trump administration is probably right in terms of sort of the, the letter of the law in the sense that this was supposed to be temporary. And you're right. 20 years is not or nearly 20 years is not temporary. That's, I think that's a fair point. That's a good point. And, you know, the, I think the positive way to spin this, give the administration as much credit as possible, the way to spin this is to say, well, like you said, they're doing exactly what they did on DACA. But I don't see it that way. I think that if the administration had, say, announced this along with some sort of legislative proposal to give these folks some sort of permanent status, then I would have had, I would have agreed with you. I would have been happy to agree with you. But I see this as at least as far as the Trump administration is concerned, as part of a pervasive uh, pattern of behavior, and we're going to get into this more with some other things, a pattern of behavior that, yes, I'm going to come right out and call racist because I think that's exactly what it is. Well, you know, I, I guess, again, to me, the, the the temporariness, you know, think think of it this way. I think, I mean, we've had a number of natural disasters uh, in this country recently, uh, and I've I've traveled to Europe, and, and Italy is a, a wonderful country, uh, a beautiful uh, beautiful place, beautiful people. Um, what what if uh, some natural disaster were to strike here, and and uh, I would say I'm going to relocate temporarily uh, to Italy. And then 10 years go by, 15 years go by, and the Italians say, well, hey, I, I think things have straightened out. Uh, when are you heading back? And I'm, nah, nah. I mean, it just, it, it just, that's, this is the sort of thing that undermines public trust in our institutions. When you say we have a, oh, it's a, a temporary program, wink, wink, uh, but everyone, but no one is, it, it's really going to be permanent. And that's, that's, I think one of the reasons why, why there was such, there's frustration and sort of this drain the swamp, uh, idea. Um, so I, I wouldn't, and then I think that to attribute, uh, Trump's lack of putting together a legislative proposal on racism, um, I think that that ignores a whole lot of other, just Trump not being good at playing this game. Well, we'll we'll we'll, um, we'll talk more about that because again, I think sure. it's uh, I think it's a pattern of behavior, and uh, you know a number of people have have brought this up, and we'll get into this a lot more in in a few minutes here. But uh, I'll try to make a case for that. So, okay. Uh, Let's talk about sort of the second big thing I think that happened is that also it was early this week, a federal judge issued an injunction ordering the Trump administration to partially restart the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals or DACA program as legal challenges to it play out in the courts. Now, the ruling only applied to those currently enrolled in the program, which leaves the administration free to not grant new requests. And the judge, a William Alsop, who's a Clinton appointee, wrote that the administration's contention that DACA is illegal is based on a questionable legal premise and that attorneys for the immigrants have clearly demonstrated that they are likely to suffer serious irreparable harm unless the court issues an injunction. The administration is, I'm sure, going to quickly appeal this ruling, and that kind of further further muddies the waters on this issue, which, of course, Congress and President Trump have been working on this week. More on that in a minute here. But before we get to that, Jay, what do you think about this ruling? Oh, I think it, I think uh, the judge is wrong. I think it gets overturned on appeal. Um, as you know, there, I mean, the, the court rulings so far have been that uh, the DACA program is unconstitutional. Um, now again, you can have different courts have different opinions and, and they, you know, work their way up and eventually get resolved in the Supreme court. Um, so I, I'm, you know, I think, I think it's wrong, but, 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 but the second, but the second point of the look, if there's an injunction, uh, that just preserves the status quo and essentially extends the timeline on this, uh, I don't, I don't think that's, that's a big, a big deal policy wise, a big policy shift. Yeah, and to me, um, I think, you know, clearly this judge has also uh, indicated his uh, disagreements with the Trump administration on the matter of policy. But in terms of the injunction, it seems which, to me which, that— Which, again, that's just exactly the problem. But. Right, but, but, but it seems to me that this is exactly what an injunction is for. If, 
you know, carrying this out before it's been through the legal process would cause someone to suffer, some group to suffer, you know, irreparable harm, then that's exactly why we have injunctions. And so in that sense, I think it's a it's a reasonable step to take. Sure. I, I, I would argue, though, I mean, there's there, there are four prongs to granting uh, an injunction. Um, and the first two biggest ones is irreparable harm. And the other is likelihood of success on the merits. Uh, and my sense is that this is this is weaker on likelihood of success on the merits, and also the 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 irreparable harm. Even um, I think there's a question, um, you know, is, is there irreparable harm unless there is uh, necessarily a, a pending enforcement action pending? If, you know, if the government says we're going to, hey, we're going to deport you, we're initiating proceedings against you, uh, I'm not sure that that you've got the irreparable harm prong yet. Uh, if, if there's no, um, uh, threatened enforcement, uh, I mean this, this far out. So I, I think, I think, uh, I think the judge got it wrong. Um, I, I, now here's the question is, I, I don't know whether it's, it's worthwhile for the administration to fight it on appeal. Uh, maybe you do on principle, but you don't try to expedite it and you let the injunction injunction stand while Congress works out, uh, a deal. I mean, I think that's that's a, that's one path forward, um, because because look, I, I think that the the president, I mean, and, and any uh, executive has sort of the the duty to defend executive powers, uh, and in in the case of of this, to rescind orders that it it uh, believes and have so far been found to be unconstitutional. So. Right. Now, before we before we get to that deal, I want to take a minute to thank the sponsor of today's show, and that is Da Vinci. Now, Jay, you've probably gone into a coffee shop and seen someone try to have a meeting right in the middle of everything that's going on. Yes. Yeah, and you know that could be kind of a, I think, a, a real mess sometimes. It really depends on the coffee shop. And well, the and, and I'll also say, my in, in my line of work uh, as as an attorney, there's there are a lot of concerns you have to have as far as about privacy and privilege and uh, what you're saying in a, in a crowded place where other people can hear. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, and you think about it, even if you're not an attorney, whoever you are, I mean, you know, you got those tiny tables, you never know if you're going to get a good spot, Wi-Fi, hey, is the Wi-Fi secure? I don't know, is it going to be working? Who knows? And of course, there's no way to give, you know, decent looking presentations. And uh, the good news here is that DaVinci has an incredibly affordable solution to this, you know, really common problem. They provide you with access to meeting rooms in well-known offices locations in every city and they make it totally easy. Just search, book, and meet. Your DaVinci meeting room comes equipped with high-speed internet and all the presentation tools you need to make your next meeting a success. And so whether you need, you know, a day office, a conference room, a boardroom, a training space, whatever, DaVinci has you covered. And best of all, DaVinci meeting rooms start at just $10 an hour. That's a great price. And in fact, even better, Go to davincimeet.com slash TPG, and for a limited time, you get 50% off your first purchase. That's D-A-V-I-N-C-I-M-E-E-T dot com slash TPG. Terms and conditions apply. For details, see davincimeet.com slash TPG. Okay, so moving on, Jay, to that last, the biggest immigration story, really, um, the main event. Well, there's sort of two mixed yeah. in there, but yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, exactly. That's a good point. The potential for legislative action. Now, President Trump held a very unusual public meeting uh, with lawmakers on Tuesday in an attempt to hammer out a compromise. And members of Congress who were there apparently weren't informed that cameras would be rolling, which forced them to actually try to you know, speak like real people as opposed to kind of parroting talking points, which is more or less standard practice when the cameras are rolling. Uh, now, in the meeting... President Trump appeared to be open to, well, more or less anything. Uh, at one point, he backed the so-called clean bill to extend DACA, meaning one without any border security provisions. And he said to conservatives that he'd take the heat for that. But then in the same meeting, he demanded a wall be part of any legislation. And at one point, President Trump flat out said, I'm not saying I want this or I want that. I will sign it. <laughs> then later in the week, when a group of uh, Congressman led by Republican Senator Lindsey Graham and Democrat Dick Durbin met with the president in the Oval Office to brief him on a compromise they'd reached. The president reportedly blew up at part of the proposal that would have given protection to some immigrants in the U.S. under the Temporary Protected Status Program that we talked about just a few minutes ago. 
The president reportedly asked why we wanted immigrants from shithole countries to come here. Uh, president Trump later denied making the comment, which seems pretty dubious. That, that actually, yeah, that actually was related also to the uh, the lottery system right. for, for allowing immigrations, that the shithole comment. Um, but, but go the ahead. Point, the point thing is he denied <laughs> making the comment. It seems pretty clear that's a lie. It was heard that by multiple, like peeding at the me- <laughs> multiple people at the meetings. Uh, the president's remarks you know, quickly uh, rebuked by a whole bunch of people and many people claiming there were yet more evidence that Donald Trump is a racist. And at this point, you know, I I think that's the only reasonable conclusion you can draw. Yes, the president of the United States is, in fact, a racist. All right, Jay, what do you make of all this? No, I I think I think that is uh, overstating it. Uh, Trump, uh, Trump saying this is, uh, first of all, demeans the office of the presidency uh, he makes himself look like uh, a buffoon. Uh, there is the there's the the argument that that goes well. This is how, you know, real people sitting in the bar uh, talk, and and maybe that's true, um, but that's not how the president talks, and not how the president ought to talk. Um, and you can look back at certainly other presidents have 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 used colorful language. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, particularly uh, President Nixon. Uh, to a great extent. Um, but, but, you know, so I think this is, this is Trump being the vulgar, uh, uh, Trump that he is. Um, and in some ways sort of, uh, snatching defeat from, from the jaws of victory. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't think it's, it's racist. I think that's, that's overstating it. Let me um, ask you this, Jay, let me, before yeah. you go on, what would it take for you to come out and say that what in other words is there anything that president trump could do or say that would lead you to say yes in fact the president of the united states is a racist i mean would he have to actually say i think that people of color are less good than white people would it have to be that clear for you to say that or is well, not I, a pattern that, of that behavior would be, enough? that would be one that would be that would be uh, an occasion when i i I'd, I'd say that I, I think he's right uh, or you would be right uh, if uh, if you were to call him a racist if he said something like that. Um, but let's look at his the the, the bigger picture though. Uh, if he's saying uh, a lot of these the third world countries uh, and describing them as as shitholes, uh, again he's he's not he's certainly being uh, vulgar and crude. But if his if the point he's trying to make is that. These are countries where there are, are failed governments. Uh, they are uh, uh, failed states in many, many senses. Um, uh, life is much, much better here and other places in the Western world. Uh, then then he's he's not wrong. And to just say that that is is based on on race, I think, over overstates. Could he say things that I would say are, are racist? Uh, absolutely. I think he could. But um I don't think this is one of them. Uh, well, again, and I understand what you're saying. If this were an isolated incident, I might agree with you. But there has been a pattern of behavior throughout his his, his career, and uh, I, I think that at this point, you know, I, I well, I'll say two things here. Number one, I am convinced that President Trump is a racist. Now, but the second thing, and this is, I think, in a way even more important than that is, well, what does this mean in terms of real consequences for real people? And that, you know, is the thing I feel that's more important to focus on because putting aside the fact that the president is a racist, what does this mean? And I think it means, uh, uh, you know, a number of things. You know, I I think uh, National Review's Jonah Goldberg wrote a great column on this this week. And he pointed out, and I agree with him, he pointed out that uh, he's damaging the Republican Party, especially among younger voters who, you know, are eventually going to be the future of the party because partisan loyalties, once they're formed, they can be pretty tough to change. And I think that's true more generally for uh, those hardliner Republicans on immigration and the chances of future support from really the inevitably growing non-European white population in this country. And so right. when I, I, I read the Jonah Goldberg piece and I, I agree, agree 100 percent. Yeah, I think it was, it was really good. Now, I think there are a couple other things here, too, is you mentioned this uh, Trump uh, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, you know, I think he's an impediment to policy for at least three major reasons. Number one, 
it's really clear that he doesn't understand details. And so he muddies the waters with these conflicting statements, even in the same meeting, right? Uh, sec secondly, he's easily persuadable by whoever he's talking to, or even if it's someone on Fox and Friends, you know, we'll talk about that in, in our next story. Uh, well, there is, there is sort of the, and some people are like that. It's sort of the, uh, um, I, I could tell you stories about uh, <laughs> my, my days in government and uh, there was this instruction that I, I was uh, to be the person who spoke to this person last exactly. before the vote. Yeah. <laughs> it was whoever talks to them last. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's going to be more, a lot more likely to happen if, A, you don't have a lot of knowledge and, B, you don't really necessarily have any principles except winning. You know, so that that's the second thing. Third his, what I would say, shockingly bad impulse control ends up becoming the story, making real progress a lot harder. And if you're a conservative or Republican, damaging your party's uh, brand, I guess you'd call sure. it, you know? So, so sure. And again, this comes from, uh, if, if you think back of, of earlier in that, that uh, televised meeting about this is the bill is going to be all about love, um, and it's uh, spreading, but no love for the shithole country, shithole countries. Um, but and to me, that's that's why I, I I don't think Trump is racist. I think he's he's just Trump. Um, uh, but uh, um, regardless, I think uh, Jonah Goldberg's right in that by doing these things and saying these things, uh, he certainly gives the appearance, uh, that he could be racist. He opens himself up to that charge and by extension, uh, opens up the Republican party to that charge. So I, yeah, I think that's, that's the, and again, and again, to me, that's the, that's the snatching, uh, defeat from the jaws of victory of, uh, a couple days ago, he was, he was close to a, uh, compromise of, uh, we have a, a deal to keep the dreamers in, uh, which uh, most everyone agrees is uh, uh, the humane uh, thing to do, uh, and is is would not is not going to you know hurt our immigration policy. But at the same time, we have a deal to heighten border border security, which again I would think most reasonable people. Uh, now, whether you want to call it a is it a a two thousand mile wall, I'm I'm not so sure that's the best way to do it. But but it, but some type of border security, including physical security and physical barriers, uh, that's not unreasonable and and I think necessary if you're going to take the first step of of granting amnesty to the dreamers. Um, and he had that, and then just sort of for for no reason, sort of sort of botched it. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. Absolutely. I think that outline of a compromise that you sort of uh, sketched out there, it, that's sort of how I see it as well. You know, Republicans give dreamers some kind of permanent legal status with a kind of a long and involved path of citizenship. And in return, they get, what, greater restrictions on their ability to sponsor non-immediate family Maybe more of right. a focus on virtual wall. Yeah, type thing. well, yeah. you know, and more of a focus on skills-based immigration, perhaps uh, more border security. What you're talking about, but also, I think Democrats aren't going to be able to sign on to a massive wall project. But you can, you know, you can work around the margins there and increase security without calling it a massive new wall, that sort of thing. And, and I think, well, you're I think, right. I think what I think what you do though for for Trump is that you, you know, whatever you you build. Uh, whatever, half a mile uh, of, of the big wall and say, oh, there it is. Um, you know, I mean, he can do a photo <laughs> op in front of it. Yeah. The, um, and, and say, you know, because, again, I, I think in, in some places and in some places, walls already exist. Um, and in, in uh, some places, they're appropriate. Well, you know, again, this the, the, we'll come back to this more and more, I think, is that it seems to me that when Republicans in, in this Republican-controlled government succeed, it is in spite of President Trump and not because of him. Well, th there's a funny sort of sort of thing that I, I think about that, and and I, I'm beyond. I'm not one of these people who think that Trump is this intentional uh, madman. That he's just you know he's really he's really crazy like a fox and he's and twelve-dimensional uh, chess. The rest of us can't even understand. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And. But I think sometimes what he does do uh, is there is a little bit of a, a now like a, a good cop, bad cop dynamic. Uh, and, and you're seeing this where uh, Paul Ryan is saying, no, we're still going to come up with a DACA deal. Uh, congressional leaders are saying we're still moving forward with a DACA deal. Um, 
and and uh, Republicans can say, hey, we're willing to work with you, but man, we got this crazy guy to deal with. Um, so and my, my sense is I think this is a big enough issue that there is still going to be some sort of uh, resolution regardless of Trump. Yeah, well, you know, in a way, here's going to be my real positive spit. In a way, it's almost a glowing testament to the strength of American political institutions that one of them can be almost, one branch can be almost wholly dysfunctional, at least a person in charge, and yet we find a way to get at least some things done. And, and boy, talk about trying to find the silver lining there, <laughs> but 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 there you go. So, um. Well, you know, something else that I, I, I wonder about Trump and, and I, you know, this isn't based on any, you know, actual inside information that I have or anything, but just from observing him over the year or so that we have and how he operated in business and how a lot of CEOs operate is, is there is less of the, here's my plan, here's my vision, go execute it. Uh, and this kind of comes up with, with you said, you know, he didn't have any proposal, uh, to deal with the, um, uh, temporary status immigrants. Uh, but he sort of expects people to come to him with, okay, here's the plan. And then he refu- accepts or rejects it and then sends them back to do it again. And they come back to him and, you know, eventually he signs off on it. I think, I think that might just be kind of more his style, um, of, of, uh, I mean, if you want to call it leadership, but, but, um, I, I think that's maybe more the way he operates is, is he is just a, uh, yes or no, I, I, I get it or I don't get it, but, uh, or you get it or you don't get it, but he's not a detailed guy <laughs> Yeah, uh-huh. uh, and, and he's not going to sit down and draft up, um, uh, real policy, uh, stuff. Now you sort of had that happen where it wasn't him, but it was say Steve Mnuchin, um, with, with tax working with, with Congress. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I, I just think that that might be a function of, of how he operates. Oh, I think it's absolutely how he operates. You know, I think he's uh, he's uh, incredibly, in this sense, at least when it comes to policy, incredibly lazy. He's certainly brilliant when it comes to uh, manipulating his base and certain other things. But in terms of actually understanding, caring, taking the time to learn about policy, he could he could pretty pretty he clearly care less. You know. Uh, Let's talk about another uh, big domestic policy story. Uh, the Trump administration this week announced that it would allow waivers for states that want to impose work requirements on Medicaid recipients. Now, this announcement represents a significant policy change, and it came in response to requests for such waivers from 10 states, all of which have Republican governors and most of which are entirely Republican-controlled. The administration's position is that this is a common-sense initiative that seeks to get past what the conservatives often call the soft bigotry of low expectations. Now, the administration will be imposing a number of restrictions on the way on these waivers, such as states having to allow job training, job searching, volunteer work, school, and taking care of an elderly or disabled dependent to count as the work requirement as well as exempting anyone who is pregnant, disabled, or medically frail. Now, critics have two main arguments against this. First, that waivers of this sort are actually not legally permissible because, by law, waivers can only be granted to promote the objectives of the Medicaid program. The second argument is that states are doing this not really to help their poorest residents, but actually to kick people off Medicaid rolls and thereby save money by imposing these administrative barriers on program enrollees. For instance, in Kentucky's application, in fact, Kentucky is the first state that's been granted one of these waivers, Medicaid recipients would have to regularly recertify their compliance with work requirements to include notifying the appropriate office within 10 days of any significant income change. And failure to do so would result in removal from Medicaid for six months. And in Kentucky's application, which I read, calls this a quote-unquote learning tool for Medicaid enrollees, (laughs) I'll say. Um, So, Jay, what what do you think of this? I I think that's good. (laughs) I love it. Um, no, I, I mean, I, I, if, if you, you read off the, um, uh, the various exceptions and those all seem pretty humane, the idea that you need to notify, uh, within, within 10 days, well, maybe 10 days is a little short, maybe make it 30, something like that. Um, but 
Medicaid fraud is is a problem. Uh, people who who work uh, and and have income levels that exceed Medicaid but yet still get it, that's a problem. That's taken away from those who uh, who really do issue, need though. it. That, well, that's no, a different, no, 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 it's, it's a related issue, but it's a different issue. You know, I think let's let's I, I'm, you know we could talk about that, but let's focus on the actual you know thing that's been done as opposed to those related issues, which you or I may or may not. Disagree what on, I'm saying but, is the reporting the reporting requirement would allow you to to catch those people who who, who did that. If you have someone who's got a new income and then it shows up that they've got actually reporting this income and and right, it's a related but different thing. But my right. point is, you know, here here's where how I approach this. You know, for instance, when we talked about we talked a lot about DACA, right? And I think both of us sort of agreed. That while we kind of understood and in a way, me more than you perhaps, supported sort of the goal that President Obama was going for with DACA, we felt it was it was problematic, was executive administrative overreach because what he did is instead of getting the law changed, actually just made the law be something other than what it was to achieve a policy objective that he couldn't get by working through Congress. I see this as the same thing in the Mm, sense that you can agree or disagree with the value of a work requirement in Medicaid. Now, I have a feeling you would agree with it. I would disagree with it. I absolutely agree with it. But the larger point, I would say, from a legal standpoint, I think this would fit with our DACA uh, reasoning, is that you know, you can't just impose this and just kind of sort of fit it in and say, well, work is kind of an objective of the Medicaid program because, well, you know, people who have jobs, there's a correlation between that and them being healthier. And so there you go. I mean, come on. No. the And there's a difference, though, between DACA and, and this because, uh, first of all, uh, in, in the DACA situation, the exception – um, the I mean the, the idea was these folks are in violation of the law, um, and you created and again it's not a it, it's not a a a well is it sort of the intent that they be construed as a violator or not no it's it's you know they're here in this country without legal authorization without um, uh, you know some some valid residency status uh, and yet then uh, the president went in and in in direct contravention of the will of Congress uh, took steps to change that. Now, in this case, uh, I see your argument saying, well, work isn't necessarily part of the goal of of Medicaid. Um, But I don't see it as being in in direct contravention. It's not as if uh, the Medicaid uh, statutes say, uh, to be eligible, we want to make sure you're not working. Um, and and the the idea that you know that that's what 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 we're getting at, I mean, would would seem to be absurd. I mean, I, it it used to be, you know, back in the day, uh, that I mean, this was a a core value of the Republican Party and a core value of 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 our country. Um, you know, look, you get up and go to work every day. I get up and go to work every again, day. Millions see, and millions look, and millions of people you know, do. I, I agree, look, but uh, you're focusing on this is my this is exactly my point. This is, I think anyone who's being honest about it would say the primary driver of this is making sure that these people who are sponging off the government work. And it's not it's not fundamentally about improving their health. It's about this this notion of grievance and fairness and that sort of thing. And okay, fine if you want to have that discussion, great. But don't pretend this is about helping these people uh, get healthier because that's just BS. And so if if the Trump administration wants to do this, then hey, put together some proposed changes to the Medicaid law, try to get that through Congress and do it honestly and openly, but don't try to sneak it under like this that's just that's just a load wow so i so let me get this straight you you then would would oppose uh or you're you're saying you you don't oppose uh uh work requirements you just want them to be congressionally approved rather than by waiver no i'm saying i do oppose them but I think if they're going to Even be, if they were congressionally approved, well, no, I no, I, I would, I would, no, I would still oppose them, but I would recognize them as legitimate, you know. So, okay. for instance, in the right. the, the date of the research, there, you would say dumb but constitutional. Exactly. I mean, to me, there's there's uh, the evidence 
or from what the research I've seen, there's absolutely no evidence that Medicaid enrollment discourages work because, you know, you can't exactly use your health care to get food or housing. And so I think the analogy that's sometimes made between other forms of work-linked aid is kind of not a good one. But, but again, you know, just what you said, I think it would be a legitimate policy if it were passed by Congress. I just think it would be bad policy to me. It seems to be essentially uh, – you know, you can say it's because Republicans hate poor people. I think that's going too far. Uh, I would say it's just basically a lot of states that are very strapped for cash, uh, you know, are looking for ways to save money, and they recognize that this is, in fact, going to save them some money. And I think, so, you know. So, what, but, okay, let's follow that through, though. Uh, how is, it saves them money in what way? It saves them money because the, for every person who's not on Medicaid, that's their state share. They don't have to pay that, that X amount in. Exactly. So in what way would this decrease the Medicaid rolls? Because people could be kicked off. I mean, people will be kicked off. So or, or, or if they're employed, they may get health insurance through their company. Sure, and I think there might be. They, they may they may relieve the state of of this burden, um, leaving more money for the people who who actually need it. Uh, and again, this this is one of those um, you know great sort of Ronald Reagan moments. Is you know we don't measure welfare by uh, or compassion by how many people are out of the welfare rolls. It's by how many people get off. If this helps people rise to a state where they don't need Medicaid. Well, isn't isn't that the the policy goal? I mean, the policy goal of Medicaid isn't to say, uh, let's have as many people enrolled as we absolutely possibly can. It's it's to you know, look, let's let's create an economy. Uh, let's let's uh, have have people who are uh, getting their insurance somewhere else than than uh, than through government, uh, and that's a benefit to those people and and to the taxpayers. Okay, you know, and I I agree with you in one sense. In that, it, I guess a lot will depend on how these how these waivers, how these programs are structured. You certainly, you're certainly right. You could structure a waiver program or a waiver in such a way as it would achieve those. I would grant you absolutely uh, laudable and humanitarian goals. Now, from what I've seen, from how these programs are being structured, and the only one I've actually looked at in any detail is Kentucky's. That does not to me, seem to be how they are actually structured. Now, this is going to play out, of course. We'll find out how this plays out. But from what I've seen, uh, you know, if you were in charge of this, I would probably be okay with it. I would say, well, you know, yeah, I'd read it over and say, yeah, Jay's program makes a lot of sense because you actually are a compassionate conservative. But oh, I, don't yeah. think, I don't think that Matt Bevan in Kentucky is. I don't think that a lot of these governors are. I don't think that they're nearly as good-hearted and as decent as you are. And so that's why I have great concerns about this. All right. Well, we can we can just I guess uh, we can both agree uh, pray, you're a pray, fine pray guy. For Matt, pray for Matt, Matt Bevan, and yes, that his his heart will be softened and uh, be more like me. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll see. Anyway, okay. <laughs> um, let's move on. Uh, on Thursday, the House of Representatives did something hard to believe, genuinely bipartisan. They approved a six-year extension of the NSA's warrantless wiretapping program. Um. Members on both sides offered an amendment that would significantly enhance protections for Americans who were swept up in warrantless surveillance of foreign nationals, but this measure was defeated when 55 Democrats joined 178 Republicans to kill it. Now, President Trump once again seemed to take multiple positions on this issue. Uh, he first tweeted opposition to an extension without changes, uh, reportedly in response to remar remarks made after an, an analyst on Fox and Friends uh, had something to say against it, which uh, show, you know, the president's favorite news show, apparently. Then hours later, he tweeted again, kind of backed off his initial comment, presumably after AIDS had a chance to, you know, actually explain the program to the president and the administration's policy on the issue. Um, now, there seems to be little opposition to changing the program in the Senate, and so basically the passage of the extension is really all but assured at this point. So, so Jay, first off, I guess, what do you think about this extension without any changes? And secondly, uh, what about all the president's shifting positions, or at least the two shifting positions? Well, and again, I think the, the conservative position on this for years has been this is a necessary tool in the, the war on terror. Uh, there are um, uh, 
provision safeguards built into it as it as it is. Uh, and I think the the uh, members of Congress who are privy to the type of um, intelligence uh, that that comes through this uh, and have the information that they see what these these types of programs have have prevented uh, are, are are very very adamant uh, that they need to uh, to continue uh, and that has been sort of an, a bipartisan um, uh, position uh, since since the uh, you know 2000s and even even notwithstanding there was a, there was a you know there were a while where the Democrats would grandstand and say this is shredding the Constitution yada 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 but when it actually comes down to the vote um, of 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 on this uh, they invariably uh, vote to renew. Um, and they're, they're the exceptions. There's the libertarians, the Rand Pauls, and so forth of the world. But um, on the conservative side, who who uh, will always oppose something like this. Um, but I'm I'm not surprised, and and I think generally it's it's good policy. I mean, so you don't see this as a as a uh, assault. I mean, not assault is too strong of a word, but certainly as sort of a chipping away at Fourth Amendment protections. No, I mean, and again, we're talking about. Um, foreign nationals, uh, and this this is that's a that's the different a different test than uh, say wiretapping U.S. citizens. Um, so, but 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 you don't think and it, it's intercepting intercepting yeah foreign communications. That's that's what we did. No, I I don't uh, I I don't I I don't see it that way. I mean, uh, uh, this is this has been you know through the courts in various iterations, and, and the courts don't see it that way either. Well, no, and, and again, I, I don't wouldn't go so far as to say that it's unconstitutional, but I, I guess I wish that more members of Congress were a little concerned about uh, Americans' Fourth Amendment uh, rights than I think that they are, and in this case, I'm kind of with the libertarians and, and some of those on the left who voted to not end the program. I wouldn't want to end the program either, but but I think that, uh, here, here's something odd, uh, I think that President Trump's initial <laughs> response on this was was maybe, uh, was maybe, not, maybe that's what he's trying to do, is give, well, give everyone been, a position. You must have been watching uh, Fox and Friends with uh, with President Trump, uh, and uh, if that's where you get your positions, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. Well, <laughs> I, I guess this no, is... Look, look, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not saying it's it's it's. This is an issue that is is real clear cut, black and white. And there's there's not concerns. There's not potential for abuse. Um, I think there's always potential for for abuse of government power. That's sort of the default conservative position. Um, but I, at this point, the program having been in place as long as it has, uh, I, I don't think you haven't seen that. And I, I think you have seen. Uh, an effective way uh, in in protecting national security. Yeah. Well, you know, onto the the other part of this issue. You know, uh, uh, President Trump, who's, who's styled himself a, a stable genius. Uh, I think he this week he's very stable. Genius. Yeah. Very sorry. Yeah. I mean, he's I think repeatedly <laughs> demonstrated that he's actually neither of these things. And it occurred to me that this is nothing that wouldn't be fixed by uh, a self-imposed moratorium on policy related tweets or or at least if he ran them by an advisor to see if they're likely to cause you know some kind of significant difficulties of course there's no way president trump would do that right and then i thought you know maybe maybe someone can appeal to the president's vanity i mean he loves giving catchy nicknames to people, right? Crooked Hillary, Lion Ted, Sloppy Steve, that sort of thing. And maybe there needs to be one applied to him that gets him so worked up that he makes an actual attempt to not be that, you know? Uh, maybe not stable genius because, you know, it's sarcastic. And that's not what Trump does with his kind of monikers that stick and are, I think are effective. Maybe something, I don't know, like 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 uh, Fickle Donald or Erratic Don or something like that might, might be better. But, but pretty clearly, if you're a conservative, especially, you got to say, oh God, what? There isn't there, is, can no one stop this man? You know, uh, uh, from from shooting himself in the foot once again. Is at least that's kind of my take on it. No, I I would yeah I would agree. Uh, and this is this is um, I think. Oh gosh, I'm trying to think who remember who wrote it um, a week or so ago. I want to say uh, Daniel Henniger in Wall Street Journal uh, that that there are sort of two administrations. There is the 
the administrations that actually get stuff done, that passes tax reform, that is uh, serious on deregulation, uh, that is is you know taking some some important steps, whether you like them or not, <clears throat> uh, internationally. Um, and then there's the then there's the Trump show, uh, which is about tweets and Russians and uh, porn stars and shithole countries and and this you know. <laughs> Uh, again, just this this bizarre uh, Donald Trump reality show and, and not actual government. Yeah, and and that actually is a, a great kind of segue. And we didn't, uh, I promise, uh, folks, we didn't actually plan this in, into what we're reading because my recommendation for this week is an article called The Decline of Anti-Trumpism by David Brooks uh, from the New York Times. Uh, now, Trey uh put a post on this on Facebook about this article. I posted myself on it. I thought it was just a great piece of, of writing, really important. Basically, uh, David Brooks makes this argument that there's what he calls the Potemkin White House, and which focuses on all that stuff that Jay was just talking about. And then there's what he calls the invisible White House, that behind-the-scenes stuff, and the stuff where they're actually getting stuff done and perhaps uh, becoming more and more effective at working around their not at all stable genius boss to get things done. I think it's a really interesting read because if you think about it, what would the Trump administration look like to you if you never looked at or read anything about Twitter? It would probably look a whole lot different. I think it's worth a read. So even though I uh, plugged it on on Facebook uh, this week, I encourage everyone to to give it another read. Also, this week, uh, it'll, it'll be up probably sometime later on Saturday, uh, early Sunday, is uh, uh, the blog this week. There are going to be actually some pictures of Jay, Trey, and myself. Listeners have asked for that for a while, so we're going to show you, put some faces with the uh, voices. Well, a calendar coming out pretty soon. <laughs> oh, God, no, yeah. That definitely, that would be nobody's idea of a good idea. But uh, uh, also some, some more recommended reading and an update on the future of the politics, guys, and as we transition into a nonprofit organization over the weeks, uh, the next few weeks, actually. So uh, check that out, and that's politicsguys.com slash Mike. Okay, Jay, what do you have for us this week? Well, I, you know, I'll tell you what, I think that the, the uh, David Brooks piece you mentioned, um, that may have been what was weighing in my mind. Although I know I've, I've read other similar pieces like that, uh, that again, say that there, there are sort of two, you know, two Trumps or sort of the, the real grown up White House and then the Trump show. Um, so my pick will be something completely different. Uh, big picture. Uh, this is a book that a friend got for me for, uh, my birthday uh, a month or so ago by uh, Odd Arne Westad about the Cold War. Uh, he is a uh, Harvard historian. Uh, his, his name, Odd Arne, that's, he's, he's like originally uh, Norwegian, I believe. Um, so it's not like a description of, of him. It's just actually, it's part <laughs> right. of, it's like a, a, a shortened version of, I think, Odd Vard or something like that, that is his, his full name. Um, but Mike, this is something that I, I I'm fascinated by Cold War uh, stuff. I mean, I, you know, you and I grew up in what was sort of the the second and then then final act of of the Cold War, and uh, so uh, this this takes it back to um, you know the the ideological uh, underpinnings and then also just the the geopolitical underpinnings and how those those two forces kind of aligned. Uh, and it's 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 built as sort of this is one of the first books that looks at uh, the Cold War in the larger sweep of history. You know, so often uh, you can't really see something while you're in it uh, or determine its significance uh, while it's going on. But, uh, you know, at this point we can look back, um, you know, 25 years and uh, uh, say, you know, OK, here's. Here's where this where this is. Here's where how it got here, and 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 it also may be, uh, you know, depending. I, I think, you know, the book doesn't say this, but I'm but again, it's just a curiosity and something to think about historical perspective. Uh, we may also look back 20 years from now and say, well, the Cold War didn't really end. There was just sort of a a weird kind of hiatus, uh, and and now you know we Russia has, has emerged again as a a, uh, a geopolitical. Uh, uh, would say adversary uh, uh, that that really they uh, a role they really hadn't played uh, for most of the '90s and early 2000s. Um, so anyway, this is this is like a, a big big history book, big picture stuff. Um, 
but uh, and it, and it's also interesting because again he is uh, uh, um, Scandinavian uh, by birth and gives a sort of a different view of the Cold War than what we typically see here in America. I mean, as someone in Scandinavia that was a um, very much on the the front lines uh, and at one time um, had been occupied by the Russians during World War II, um, uh, or or at least there was a presence. I'm not sure whether they actually. But, but regardless, um, uh, it's it's fascinating, and uh, if you're looking for like a a big book to kind of just sit around and huddle huddle by the fire while the snow continues to fall, uh, that's this is a good one. It sounds great, and I'm sure at this point, listeners are saying, "Jay, Jay, what's the title, man?" Oh no, the title is the, the Cold War. The Cold War. Uh, okay, okay. Just, that's all there is to it. Yes, the Arnie uh, um, uh, Westad. Uh, the Cold War. I kept on thinking, okay, he's going to mention the title there at some point. So there you go. No, I thought I, I thought I got that out there. Yes. No, I, just, yeah. there, there will be. Well, of course, we'll have links yeah, to all the, this in the, the show the notes. Whole, the complete title: The Cold War: A World History. There you go. Okay. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks everyone for listening. We hope you liked what you heard, and that you will check out today's sponsor, Da Vinci, finding incredibly affording media incredibly affordable meeting room. I can talk in every city with Da Vinci. Go to davincimeet.com slash TPG and for a limited time, get 50% off your first purchase. You know, as we do move into our nonprofit, no ads uh, uh, status here, it'll actually be in early February, listener support is more important to us now than ever. So if you'd like to help us out, go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link to become a sustaining monthly supporter or PayPal link there to make a one-time or regular sustaining monthly contribution. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Also, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes does help. If you want to get in touch with us, mail at politicsguys.com or our Facebook page where we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at Politics Guys. Also, before we uh, sign off, I should mention that next week's show will be uh, airing on Sunday morning, no, or Sunday afternoon, sorry, not Saturday afternoon, just to let you know that. Uh, and finally, the executive producers of the Politics Guys, Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorf, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. That's me. We'll be back from our, we'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.